Hi everyone, welcome to Not Insecure. We're glad you're here. If you're interested in hearing about security industry trends, what companies should be doing for security, technical security questions, and more, then you're in the right place. All from the view of a product manager and a senior dev lead. Our goal is to build an authentic, transparent discussion about the challenges that we face building security software today. Stay tuned. Welcome to the third episode of Not Insecure. Today, we're going to discuss what startups and small to medium-sized businesses should be doing for security. And at Gemini, this has been kind of a, a big subject for us. You know, we're building a product right now that our target market we believe to be is startups and small to medium-sized businesses. And what we've come to learn is that there's really not great security tools out there that are catered towards small to medium-sized businesses or even really resources. And so that brings up my first question, Joe, Matt, is, you know, why do you guys think that small businesses aren't doing anything for security? Yeah, I'll start us out with, with one. Um, a lot of them just don't really know what to do. It's not their area of expertise. They have no idea that well, maybe that they even should be doing something or even if they did want to, they often don't know how to get started. Um, they also perceive it to be too expensive. Uh, there's some truth that there's expense there, but it's often not too expensive, but that's the common perception. I totally agree with you, Joe. Um, and a lot of times companies don't know how they're going to be regulated in the early days. Before you do a deal, you may or may not know what your partners or the buyers are gonna hold you responsible for. I will go a little bit against the grain on this question because I think actually with cloud-based services like Google Apps and O365, in some ways it's easier to run a small company securely than it ever has been before. The, the flip side of that is there's more paths to fraud and more organization around finding it than there ever has been before. And so I think what, what I like to think about here is, you know, if you're a small company, it may feel like a vast nebula of security things and details and, and you're never going to win. And I think the, the general approach that, that kind of counteracts that is to just have a plan and try to do a breadth of things appropriately. I think that's what we're going to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd, I'd say that's, that's actually a great point about the cloud. And um, I think that more and more small businesses are becoming comfortable with that. I know in, you know, previous, previous years, sometimes people were reluctant to do that, but using the cloud so much in our personal lives is bringing a lot of comfort to people. And if they'll just, you know, embrace that for their business side, you can get um, better security in some places than you would build yourself. For sure. Um, so another kind of question going off this question would be why are companies not catering to small companies when it comes to security? Any thoughts on that? Well, I think there's a, there are lots of huge opportunities to build great complex software and make 
tons and tons of money in a very like a rel- relatively low number of sales. So if you're <clears throat> if you look at the landscape, there are a, a ever increasing number of AI based security tools that cater to enterprises and that cost an arm and a leg. And so if you're setting out to build a new security tool, it's very tempting to go upstream or up market to these enterprises who will pay a lot more for a tool based on newer technology if it's effective in a new way. Whereas small and medium sized businesses, really what they need are, need are like the meat and potatoes of security. They, I mean, actually I would argue everybody needs the meat and potatoes of security, which are gonna be some of the things we talk about, You know, maybe the non-glamorous, just essential things that you should be doing if you're running a business and you care about um, you know, preventing issues from happening. But I think the money, the opportunities at banks and very large software enterprises are so luring that it's, it's very tempting for most security vendors to go chase those opportunities. And I left out the government, but I probably shouldn't have. So, oh, Joe? No, I was just going to say we could have a whole other conversation about the government. <laughs> but we probably shouldn't. Probably not. Um, so what are some of those core things that organizations uh, could be doing for security? Other than uh, one that Matt mentioned, which is when you're picking services, go to services that will offer you some security, you know, out of the box. Um, Google and Office 365 are good candidates for running your core, you know, email services and that kind of thing. Additionally, you know, good passwords, pick good passwords, use multi-factor. Uh, all of the, all the big services will support multi-factor authentication. And it's super easy to do nowadays. You can get an app on your phone that you just pull it up and there it is. Um, really simple to do these kind of things, but a lot of people just sometimes don't even realize those, those services are there and all you have to do is go turn them on. So I'd like to turn this conversation, and I know you guys are really trying hard to avoid being too product-centric, but I do want to step back and say, you know, part of what we did with um, securityprogram.io is try to figure out what these core things that every business should be doing are, and we enumerated those. And I really think it'd be valuable for our listeners to go through one by one what these things are and why they matter, and maybe even explain like how we envision them working for small and medium sized companies. So if it's okay, maybe I'll start with one or two and then we can flip back and forth. Does that sound okay? Sure. So anyone that, so, so one of the things that triggers small and medium sized companies caring about security is when they do business with a larger company and now they need to have a security program. And often a small company may not know what that means or how to implement it. And a lot of times that starts with, the answer starts with having security policies, meaning policies explain what, you, what your expectations are around security. A policy might say that um, we need every user that interacts with our system to have a unique identity. It's not going to say how that identity gets established, but the reason for that policy is so that we know that the user maps to a certain individual and we can track who did what in our system. A policy might say something like, we need to encrypt data at rest that is sensitive. Um, 
the policies set the expectations that then the organization can work through so that they're doing all the right things more broadly. And it turns out writing policies is not something I'm passionate about, but we've done it enough that now we have a bunch of templates and we've gotten to where we have what we think are a good set of working core policies, which are essentially things you get almost out of the box in, in our software platform, or if you just actually want to reach out to me, I'm happy to just send them to you, honestly. Um, the policies are like a map of what you kind of say you're going to do or what you're doing. Um, one thing I'll mention is that a lot of times policies need to be, um, they, people like to know that their policies are mapped to a particular security standard. And so we've, in general, mapped our policies to NIST 853, just because that's a popular standard that people care about. Lots of times we see um, audit questions. Do you have policies? You know, what standards are they aligned to? And so we basically just make our policies aligned out of the box to NIST 853. And policies, you know, what they look like, it's a bunch of Word docs or, or web pages that explain what your policies are. And typically you need to approve them and, and then follow them. And, and that's more complicated than just a short uh, podcast will allow us to explain. But at a high level, it's just your working um, guidelines for how your program is going to run. Matt, I was going to say you're talking like a true salesman until you agreed to give away your policies. <laughs> you, you know, I mean, th this is one of the great things about being part of a small company though, is like I authentically like want our people to succeed and I don't see the policies as being the thing that is make it or break it that's unique to us. I mean, you can download policies off the internet. You could buy policies for $700 from a, you know, templates. It's really like what you do with them that matters. And I think that's where we're going to get in some of the podcasts today. And, um, but yeah, I, I agree with you, but, but, but really I'm passionate about helping people. So that's, so I will give you the policies for free if you want it. Yeah. Cause we all know it's in the execution, right? I mean, you can, you can ratify all the policies you want, hang them on a wall somewhere, but if you're not following them, what good are they? Exactly. Maybe so, should we talk a little bit about, I know we've mentioned it in previous podcasts, but you talk about our policies being aligned to, to NIST 853. Uh, maybe for people who haven't heard the previous podcast or, you know, just don't recall, why don't you uh, speak to a little bit about what NIST is and why 853 is something that's useful? Well, NIST is a standards body that creates standards for all different sorts of, of things, including scientific measurement and and turns out cybersecurity. And NIST 853 specifically is a, um, a standard that includes on the order of 200 specific control areas, or maybe it's like I think 19 control areas and 200 controls that you should have in place to be building a, a, a good security program. And so that's a open standard, which is part of why we prefer it um, to some of the other alternatives. It's compatible with ISO and SOC 2 and some of the others, meaning you can use NIST to get yourself to a good place and as a basis for the audit that you do related to SOC 2, um, but it's a different beast. But it's also much more open and I think easier for people to, to access and understand, and that's why we, we sort of align to it. Sweet, so let's say that a company, a small company, they have their policies, and within those policies, they have a whole bunch of security tasks, things they should do. 
what are some of the core things that come out of those policies that you believe should be kind of the first things that small companies should do? Well, and that's what we're talking about, right? Because we basically codified the things we think are the most important into policy as well, right? So we, mm -hmm. one of the nice things about this is we can build an internally consistent set of resources. Um, but one of the things we think every company should do is provide their employees with general security awareness training, right? So you're an employee, you're going to get fished. You may or may not think it's likely your employees are going to fall for phishing, but we talk to companies almost every week that have had some financial officer fished in some way or form, meaning please wire, you know, or maybe it's the second in command gets an email from the first in command, the CFO to wire money to a certain account. And it turns out it really only depends on that second in command's security awareness, whether they do that without sort of verifying with the CFO that that's the right thing to do. Um, and so we think it's really important for people to be aware of the common scams that are going on, the common issues that companies are seeing. And so general security awareness training will cover things like that, things like phishing, things like passwords. How do you define a good password? Should you share your company password with your gym password? Um, and some of the things are obvious, but it's, it's important to understand that users don't always know the right thing. And so providing guidance is really important. And that human level of security is one of the most important um, and most often overlooked, especially at smaller companies. And so, I mean, the cool thing is with our security program.io platform, we get to build that awareness training, map to the policies right into the platform. And again, it's not a sales pitch. It's just saying we can easily provide decent training for companies to get this started without having to like worry about it, sign a big contract, figure out if it's perfect. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's, it's a good way to get bootstrapped. So Matt, let's say that I am a small company of like three or four people and I'm needing to implement some of these security things like password complexity or MFA or single sign-on and such, what are some kind of like the do's and don'ts? So for password complexity, what are some of those requirements that you normally recommend? Well, so first of all, depending on the system you're using, you will have different options about as far as how to enforce password complexity. So many organizations used to run Active Directory and Active Directory had baked in ways to make sure that users selected passwords that were um, appropriate. And, and the rules that you typically see were can't be any of the last 10, can't include the company name or the username, must have a certain length. Typically it used to be eight. I think nowadays people are recommending 10. Um, characters must include numbers, special characters, caps, lowercase. The reason for all of those rules is to have the passwords be hard to guess. So we do projects where literally here's a bunch of PDFs that have passwords attached to them. Can you break any of those? Because maybe somebody left the company and they had the password and didn't turn it over. And so they wanted us to help them do that or something like that. Obviously, we would establish that the company who's asking us to do this owns the documents or has the right to do this. And then we would start cracking passwords. And if your password is less than eight characters, it's very practical, less than or equal to eight characters, it's very practical to, 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 to guess it. 
if it's all alpha, like it's all just A through Z, it's also very easy to cat, to, to guess. <clears throat> and so, and depending on the structure of the password, it, it makes guessing passwords, you know, a very, um, like actually doable thing. It's something that, that people can do. If you're in AWS or if you're in AWS, you get to check boxes to turn on these types of um, complexity requirements. If you're in, um, I don't believe Google Apps has that same um, functionality, but you should, you could specify it in a policy that people choose passwords of a high complexity. Alternatively, or maybe even better, use a password manager. Password managers already know how to choose really hard passwords. Um, and for most people in most companies, they are a more secure solution than what you'd otherwise be doing. I'm glad to hear you mention password managers there, Matt, because that definitely uh, can help address one of the major complaints that when I used to work IT, I would hear from people, which is, oh man, there's another system. I've got another password to remember. So the great thing about a password manager is you can remember one really secure passphrase, preferably, to unlock your password manager and let it generate really strong passwords and keep up with those for you. Um, so they're, they're really convenient tools, I think. The other thing that people don't always think about with password managers is, you know, let's say I have a password set up for Amazon.com. If I go to Amazon.com with a O and with a zero instead of an O in it, it's not going to prefill my password because it knows that URL isn't the same one I already had a password for. So it's almost like preventing certain types of phishing attacks because if it prompts you for a password and you're not expecting it, it's going to make you stop and think about, is this really the domain I mean to be at? And so there's a layer of protection that it provides that way beyond just managing your passwords. Yeah, so we'll, we'll drop in the show notes some password managers that maybe you can consider. Um, I've been, personally, I've been using Bitwarden lately and really yeah. liking it. So, I mean, I, I think I can recommend that pretty, pretty highly personally. Um, it's an open source project, which is nice. So it means it's, you know, subject to community review, something you like to see for those kind of tools. Yep. Yep. I think the password manager is also great for people who like to write down their passwords because normally they're written in non-secure um, places. For example, my sister likes to write down her passwords in her notes on her iPhone and then someone hacked her iCloud. Therefore, everyone had her passwords that she wrote in her iCloud notes. Oh, no. <laughs> Oops. Change all those passwords, right? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. But anyways, um, so some other things I know that we've mentioned before and that are also part of our core tasks within SVIO is monthly user audits. Joe, could you talk some, um, talk a little bit about this? Yeah. <clears throat> so the idea for on monthly user audits is just to make sure that we know the people who have access to our services and our systems. Um, you know, if, if you're an office of three people, maybe this is easy, but often maybe not. <laughs> so you want to just go every month, go into every system you've got and confirm that you don't have un users that you don't expect there to make sure that you don't have people set up as an admin when they don't need admin access. It's, a, it's an easy way to kind of catch 
possible um, possible ways that someone can come in. If you've, you've got an old person who left, maybe you didn't delete their user account. Um, even if the employee's not disgruntled and you wouldn't expect them, somebody could get their hands on those credentials and use them to, to get into your system. I just add, we like to see automation of this, especially as you scale into a larger company. So I've seen security audits where the auditor comes in and takes screenshots of the lists of users in different systems. And that's a painful way to do this audit, but we actually wrote an open source tool called GA, Gemari GA, G-A-A, um, which will get the users out of Google Apps, AWS, and GitHub for the purposes of being able to programmatically know who your users are. And so if you're scaled up a little bit or you're more of a tech company, um, having some automation around this user auditing can be a really good, a really good thing to do. And leading into another item we have here that, that can also help with user audits is uh, using single sign-on. So ideally you want to have your sources of identity be in as few systems as possible. So if you're you know, using Google Apps, say you're using Google Apps as your primary email source and you know, your cloud, uh, cloud storage solution, most all online services will allow you to sign in with your Google account. So then you can control access to other cloud services that you're using all through the identities of your employees that you have in Google Cloud. Right, and just to say this out loud, it's implied in what you said, but let me just say it really explicitly. If you remove someone from Google Cloud, it means their access to all those other systems will also be suspended. And so you don't have to manage the account in many, many places. Uh, Matt, going off what you said, another uh, important security task is to catalog those apps in use and the ones that use SSO. And so kind of like you said, if you do that, you're going to know which ones use SSO. So when you are offboarding an employee, um, it'll make it easier. Yeah, and you'll see, I mean, there'll be another whole discussion about what apps you're allowed to put what data in. And that's something that somebody at the company should be thinking about. Um, I can't tell you how many times we see companies where, oh, there's some Dropbox folder over here that they just drop everything into. And, you know, it's really not, nobody's really thinking about what data should go there um, or who should be avail accessible to share that. Maybe it's a personal account, et cetera. And so it's really important to know, you know, what your apps are. And, and you know, I know fairly much off the top of my head what apps Gemari uses, but I also have a list. Um, and, and that to me is, is, is important so that we can know that our, what our risk profile looks like in terms of those integrations. Absolutely, so um, along I think we with- Talk about MFA, because we talked about it, but we didn't really say very much about it. So maybe, maybe we can, can we do that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we mentioned MFA, but we never really talked exactly about what MFA is in detail. Um, Joe, do you want to hit on that? Yeah, so MFA stands for multi-factor authentication. Uh, you'll also hear it called 2FA for two-factor authentication if there's only two factors. So really, it combines something that you know, like your password or your passphrase, with something that you have your smartphone, um, a key fob, something like that, 
in order to gain access to accounts. So it's a really good way <clears throat> to add some another level of protection because if someone has my user ID and they somehow obtain my password, maybe I messed up on one of the things we talked about earlier and I wrote it on a post-it note under my keyboard at my desk, which was supposed to be secure and somebody grabbed it. Someone still won't be able to log into my account without that second factor. An app on my smartphone, for instance, that will give me a, a rotating passcode that changes every 30 seconds. So if they don't have all that, those pieces of information, they can't gain access to my account. So it's a, it's a really good way to protect yourself in addition to, to picking really good passwords. And it's becoming pretty prevalent. Almost all services will support this now. So we think it's a really good way to, to protect yourself. I know for Gemini, we enforce it. We use, you know, Google and Microsoft and within the settings in both of those uh, softwares you can enforce. Joe, tell us about the client software you like to use for that. So I'm currently using Authy. Um, well, actually, I've got two different, two different applications I'm using primarily for this. And then a bunch of specialty stuff. As we talked about in a previous podcast, I'm a bit of a, a gamer. So even, even um, a lot of the games that I play online have this multi-factor enabled. So I've, some of them have their own apps. You can't use a specific app. But, so I've got those. But then I have Authy, which is my primary one. And it will also allow you to sync uh, these password or these, these time-based passwords across devices. So you, you can put it on your phone. You can also have it on your desktop. Uh, to make it can more convenient to get access to those when you need them. Previously though, I was, I was mentioning Bitwarden as a uh, password manager. Bitwarden can also do time-based uh, one single use passwords. And so I'm experimenting with it, but Authy primarily is, is good. Uh, I think Keely mentioned Google Authenticator earlier is another free solution that Google offers. And Microsoft of course has their own solution as well. What about you guys? What do you use for, for your MFA? I use Authy. Also Authy. Uh, specific, specifically, I like Authy for social channels. So if you manage the social channels for your organization, Authy is great for that. Most of that. Um, I know like Facebook and Instagram have that implemented pretty easily. Yeah, I know this is kind of silly, but one thing I really like about Authy is when you put, uh, when you set up an account, not only, of course, you can give it a name, obviously, but you can put an icon there. So for all, a lot of the major services, they've got that services icon. So you pull up Authy, it makes it a lot faster. Sometimes you just grow, go straight to the one you need because you can visually recognize, you know, that icon for AWS or for Facebook, et cetera. Something I'll mention related to MFA that you didn't quite touch on yet is I also like to use um, MFA with AWS. So when I'm using the command line, I use I like to use AWS Vault and STS, which allows me to then have to put in the second factor that Authy has when I'm first doing a command. And then for the period of that STS session, I don't have to re-enter the, the, the second factor. But it means that even the the access keys on my local machine are not really that useful because I need that second factor to be able to do anything. So that's kind of a, a, a handy 
additional thing. And I think it's especially a good thing. You know, we do a lot of work where we're dealing with different customers, AWS accounts. And so I think it's nice to be able to say we've strongly authenticated before we do anything, right? We really know it's Joe or it's Matt or it's whoever. Yeah, that's a good point, Matt. I'd say that uh, if, you, if you're interested in that kind of thing, that we'll probably be doing a future podcast around that. I have a lot of thoughts about uh, <laughs> bootstrapping an AWS environment in a secure way. So maybe uh, stay tuned and we'll talk about that in more depth later. Cool. Sweet. Um, I guess we can move on now. Next on my list, I have confirming confidentiality agreements and making sure that you have those in place. Matt, do you want to hit on that? Yeah, I mean, so this is a non-exciting sort of legalese type of issue to have, but, but you know, a lot of the companies we work with may be subcontracting or may have employees who are working with them. And it's important to have the legal structure so that if you're investing and in, in you're hiring someone to work on a problem you want to solve, it's very clear what their responsibilities are in terms of protecting that data or what your partner's uh, responsibilities are for protecting that data. And so, you know, obviously I would think twice before giving a partner access to data that needs to be confidential or that's, that's very sensitive to my organization. But in a lot of cases, that is important. And so then you need to have the legal structure to help make sure that it's not, um, it, that it's managed, that it's carefully dealt with. And essentially that both parties agree to keep that confidential information confidential, <laughs> not share it publicly, et cetera. One good example I, I like to use for this to make it seem how uh, important it is, even if, say, you're a, a small, single practice a physician and you have a service that comes by to pick up paper to be shredded, that's the type of organization you may not think about that, but they're actually taking away potentially secure information. So you want to make sure you've got agreements in place that protects the confidentiality of that as they go to destroy it. Sweet. Let's talk vulnerability scanning. Vulnerability scanning is something that's been a subject at Gemini for a while. We're trying to automate this in the app, um, which is a security program.io app. So vulnerability scanning, how often should companies do a vulnerability scan and what specifically should they be scanning? We typically recommend that people do this quarterly as part of their you know, standard practice. You should be scanning for vulnerabilities any ex, anything that's externally accessible. So one, one question I get from a lot of people is say, oh, well, I'm not running any servers in my, on my network. Like, I don't have a web server or anything that's in-house. But if you have an internet connection, you've still got a public address that's exposed. And you should be, you know, you should be checking that to make sure that everything is, is good there. Um, depending on the size of your organization, it's also good to sometimes do vulnerability scanning within your own network internally. So this would consist of, say, you know, scanning all of your, your endpoints, your devices that are there, and making sure that you don't see anything that uh, looks like it could be malicious. I will say, 
I think everything you said, I agree with Joe. The one thing I will say is vulnerability scanning used to be, I mean, I worked on a vulnerability scanner for a bunch of years and it used to be really solid, good, but almost even like, I don't want to say ahead, but it was like some of the more cool technology and security. And this is a decade ago, right? <laughs> um, where you're using it to identify things, but it's really kind of costly to run and manage and deal with, right? Nowadays, it's so easy to do at least an initial level of vulnerability scanning, and it's much easier to automate. So I would recommend, you know, we do quarterly for sort of audit purposes, like where we've got a recorded version of the test. But the purpose of a vulnerability scan is essentially a network survey for anything that's either not planned to be there or is not patched. Fundamentally, that's what you're looking at. And to me, I'd love to run that daily, weekly, how, as often as you can, as long as you can get the automation to where you only have to deal with it when there's an issue to deal with, right? If you need to manually run a tool and look at it and then say, okay, I dealt with this, that's why we sort of back off to quarterly because that's not something that people want to spend a ton of time doing. But the fact of the matter is lots of issues in the real world happen because there's an unpatched XP machine in the corner that nobody really thought about. Um, and I do agree with you, Joe, also about doing both. I, I think external is probably more important initially, but most companies that, that get serious want to start to do this internally as well so that they can help ensure that they're patching properly, which we'll get to later, but help ensure that they're patching properly. It's kind of like a, a check on that, that other control. Yep. Do you want to go ahead and talk about patching? Um, I know that patching uh, users and services is also very important. Sure. So, I mean, the flip side of you're scanning for things that might be vulnerable in the network are the things that are vulnerable in the network. And the answer for why they're vulnerable in the network is usually because there's some well-understood security issue on those uh, devices or, or servers that somebody could exploit. And so the worst case scenario is there's a, a service running that is using old software that's known to be vulnerable that where there's a public exploit available for it and somebody can just go run that public exploit to take over that machine. And, um, and so it's important to patch users' machines, servers, even the libraries, like I, I, this is kind of an extension of patching, but keeping your libraries up to date in a software application. All of those things are really important and foundational to having a secure environment because if I'm not patching Windows or Mac OS or what have you, I'm potentially exposed to things that people already know about, right? Like the industry knows there's a problem. They've issued a patch, but we haven't necessarily applied it. Now, in the past, um, people hesitated to apply patches because it was risky because uh, the patch might break something in production, especially on servers. And, and while that is still certainly a potential risk, the, the, the move I see is that people are much less worried about that. And they're either patching on an ongoing automated basis or they are literally rolling whole new images so for example, if you're using Docker, you're spinning up a whole new image with all new current patched software every week or month or something like that. So you're not just patching, you're actually literally replacing an older image with a new image that's fully up to date. Um, 
And so in terms of patching users at scale, that starts to look like having group policy or some sort of configuration management solution for your, your platforms so that you can make sure that your users are applying patches. Because if you just ask users to apply patches, they won't. And depending on your environment, sometimes there are, you know, some tools that can help with this. Like for, for those of you who are in Windows Shop, um, you know, Microsoft Server now includes some tools that can help you ensure that your desktop machines are getting patched on a regular basis. Sweet. Um, I know earlier we hit a little bit on knowing where your data is um, and really, you know, what, knowing what data you have. And another important part of building your security program is that you organize data into tiers. Do one of you want to talk a little bit on what those tiers are and why this is important? Well, cataloging your data is important for the same reason that we want to catalog applications. We need to know what data we have, where it's stored, who has access to it, et cetera. Uh, the tiers really, I mean, the tiers can be whatever you want them to be, basically. I mean, we, we normally go in with a three-tier system to start with where you've got uh, confidential information that should not be disclosed. We've got um, internal information. And then we've got public information. So basically, it's it's the levels of visibility in terms of who you would access or who you would want to have access to that information. Public is something you would share readily with, with anyone or may already be out in public view. If you've got a website, for instance, there's data there that's public data if it doesn't require authentication to gain access to it. Um, but in some cases, different organizations have you know, more granular needs. Um, maybe, maybe you collect data indirectly from downstream customers of your customers and you want to call that out into a specific class so that you can talk about how you store it and how you retrieve it, how you destroy it when it's no longer necessary to have it. I'd like to add that all this should be part of your data uh, data classification policy. Sorry there. Um, but then your data classification part, uh, policy is where you will um, decide what tiers you have and what data goes into each tier. Uh, with that being said, you know, if I'm new to this and I know I need to do this, but not exactly sure what should go in what tier, do you guys have any general guidelines there? Well, so I think Joe tried to speak to that and I think he was right, but I think a good way to think about it is your, your highest tier, the most secure tier is the data that is regulated that you could get sued for exposing by either the government or, um, or by a standards body like PCI. Um, it's also, um, health data. So if you have personal health information, personally identifiable information, account numbers, social security numbers, VINs, um, any kind of financial account number, those would be in sort of your top tier of data that you really can't share. And typically the data classification policy would say, for this tier, you need to encrypt that data 
both at rest and in transit, which I think we can talk about separately as two specific topics. Um, the middle tier, sort of the internal tier might be, you know, sort of forward looking plans that aren't so specific that they're going to be, you know, showing your hand to investors, let's say. So maybe a project plan for an internal product or a, a budget for a project, right? Like that's not intended to be public, but if it was exposed, it wouldn't necessarily um, be something that you're going to suffer financial loss because it was exposed. Does that make sense? And then public data is obviously like things like job descriptions, like, oh, we're using Java. That's not a secret because you have to put it in a job description to find people who know Java, <laughs> right? Yeah. So like there's sort of tiers of information like that. Did that answer the question? Yep. That was perfect. Um, so now, you know, I have my data, I have them ranked into tiers. I know where they're at. What do I need to now do with that data to make sure that I am securing it as best as possible? Matt touched on a couple of those in, in that discussion and also earlier in the podcast. And some of that is we want to um, encrypt the data at rest. So that's while it's, you know, stored on disk, it needs to be encrypted with strong encryption. Uh, that can also include doing things like transparent disk or transparent data encryption in a database. If you're SQL server or Oracle encrypting the actual disk itself or the files on disk. We also want to make sure that data is always encrypted when it's in transit. So this means that if you're you know, transacting data over or sending data across the internet, that everything's covered by SSL encryption or uh, and even on your internal networks, we would expect it to, to be encrypted when handed even between various services at your organization. Yeah, it's interesting to think about like, what is your internal network? when your network is in the cloud, <laughs> right? So we like to say, I mean, I like to say use TLS everywhere. TLS is, the, is sort of the same thing as SSL, but the current, current generation, use TLS everywhere. Um, yeah, I just we have questions from clients occasionally. We would look at their architecture and it's like, oh, well, we've got these two internal services that talk to each other. They're not exposed to the internet. No one can talk to them, but it's all in the cloud. Why do I have to encrypt that data? Like, well, you, sh you should always encrypt in transit. The great, one of the great things that cloud has helped with this again is that encrypting in transit is pretty simple to do now in a lot of cases. It's right. certificates are free. <laughs> um, there's, there's really, there's no reason to not encrypt when anytime your data is in transit. Well, and it's all automatable with things like CertBot from, you know, the, um, Hackney group, right? Um, speaking about encrypting data at rest, maybe I'll just go, if I can riff on that for a second. You know, I'm looking at a laptop. On my laptop, the hard drive's encrypted. That means that if I lose it and somebody tries to boot it up, theoretically, they can't see the data that I have. That's important because I have lots of different client data on that, right? Um, I'm also using um, S3. I would like S3 to be encrypted all the time there's really no reason that you'd ever use S3 not encrypted. And the type of encryption you use beyond that, that's a thing you could reach out to us to discuss more if you want, but basically there's no reason to ever have data in S3 that's not encrypted. And we use S3 to do things like share files, share videos, uh, things like that. Um, we also use databases. Those databases should be encrypted too, so that when their data touches the disk, 
it's going to be encrypted. Um, and part of the reason for all that is that in the cloud, in theory, your operators and your co-tenants, right? So you're, anytime you're in the cloud, you're operating as a guest in a host VM. In theory, the other guests may be friendly, but in practice, they're probably also hostile. And the question is, if they can escape out of their host, their guest, can they see anything on the host or the other guests? And using the encryption solutions that are provided to you by the cloud vendors um, strongly helps you to protect that data. Going a step further, and this is sort of building off of the catalog cataloging apps in use, really every one of those apps should also be something where you stop and say, are they encrypting our data? Like I'm using salesforce.com and I'm putting in all my customers and maybe I'm putting in sensitive notes about who they are and what they do and what their birthday is or who knows what it is, right? Goodness knows, I hope that data is encrypted in Salesforce, right? We don't actually use Salesforce, but if we did, I would have checked. Does that make sense? Yeah, and a um, couple, couple things I'll add there. For those who may not be in AWS or know what AWS services are, S3 is AWS's file storage service. Um, but when you talk about VMs there and, and potentially having a malicious uh, guest next to you, they can't break out of that, right? <laughs> you can't see Joe's face, but he's smirking. <laughs> yes, I mean, for, for those, and I, and I say this just to reiterate and say, for those who maybe don't follow security as closely as, as all of us do, it actually has been done. So I've had this conversation with people, is the reason I bring it up. Just because you've got the hypervisor there doesn't mean you're completely protected. It is possible to break out across that boundary. I have a great analogy for talking about network segmentation, which I think would be a good topic to cover. Can I jump there? Yeah, let's hear it. Literally just came to me, right? So I don't know. I don't actually know if it's a good one or not. Let's find out. I saw the light bulb come on. <laughs> or dim. Whatever. Whatever. Whatever actually happened. Um, so I'm laughing because so, so the whole idea of network segmentation is like separating things on your network, but not one server from another, but groups of servers from each other's stuff. And so maybe a good way to think about this is I have a couple daughters and they love books. And so daughter number one wants to keep all her books in her room. And daughter number two wants to keep all her books in her room. But they have some books they share with us that we put in our library. Or it's not really a library. That's sort of making it sound like a big place, but it's like a room with some bookshelves, right? And so when you want to go get a book, I can go to the library, but I won't go in my daughter's room without talking to her to get a specific book, right? So the whole idea of segmentation is we're putting things in appropriate places so that we can control access to them, right? Daughter number one gets to go to daughter number one's room without authenticate, well, she's authenticated, but without having to do very much, right? have a conversation about what she wants or anything. She can do anything she wants in daughter number one's room. Daughter number two can do anything she wants in daughter number two or two's room. But daughter number two, if she wants to go into daughter number one's room, better know what she's asking for and why. But we can all get to, to the library. So your networks look just like this, whether they're in the cloud or on premise. You have parts of your network you really don't want people to get to. So I've seen this done very effectively with PCI, for example, where you want to keep credit card data 
well, step one with PCI is don't handle credit card data. Don't handle credit card data. Don't handle credit card data. Use, you know, Stripe or Braintree or some service that lets you do it so that you don't ever see the credit card, right? If you can do that. But if you're a big enough customer where you need to store credit card data, it helps a lot to have a very small area that that credit card data ever touches. That would be one of your networks. Your finance team might be another network. Your development team might be another network. Um, your test environment might be another network. Your production application environment might be another one. So we're taking the same idea of the like the rooms and access control to the rooms. We're just applying it at a network level so that we've got a way to check. And the whole idea is now we're controlling who can cross those boundaries. And actually in Amazon's, in Amazon Web Services, I'm sorry that I keep using these acronyms and things that people don't know, but you could turn on um, flow logs and, and guard duty and actually just find out immediately that this is happening, that people are going from room to room and maybe I don't know. Maybe I'm asleep and daughter number two snuck into daughter number one's room. Wouldn't I like to know that? Did the analogy go totally off the rails or do you think it made sense? It made sense, though I think if daughter number two or one or whatever went in the other room, I think you would know because you would hear it. <laughs> well, daughter number one has an excellent intrusion detection system. <laughs> <laughs> and pretty good alarm notifications. <laughs> yeah, and she knows how to, how to escalate an incident. <laughs> Which brings us to our next topic. <laughs> but, but do you have a response plan? <laughs> is that terrible that's so good no no i like this we should have started this analogy from the beginning <laughs> it's pretty funny right <laughs> so let's say daughter number two does sneak into daughter number one's room and steal a book what should daughter number one do well i would like her to talk to daughter number two in that particular scenario if she does can't resolve it i'd like her to come to us the parents right and then we could deal with it. We have to define and discuss that process so that the, so that the different uh, stakeholders understand what to do, right? Daughter under two, number two also knows what happens when she gets caught. Daughter number two also knows that, that we're gonna actually care what's true. So if daughter number one just says that daughter number two is there but can't prove it, we're maybe gonna take a different reaction. And so this is important because as a small company, it's important to know that you may have incidents and you may want to define what you do when you have an incident. And it's very tempting to get on Slack or teams and start talking about all the people who, you know, the, the, the things you need to do, what happened, which data got exposed, et cetera. But really that's not the right way to handle that because what you want is a very specific audience. Usually it's the person who's responsible for security and maybe a general counsel maybe someone who does communications to be involved in how you think about what the, the incident handling is. And depending on what the incident is, then it may mean you need to talk to a partner like a, like a cloud provider, or maybe you need to talk to somebody who's in your IT service organization who can do more, a deeper look, or maybe there's something real serious and you need to actually get forensics investigation involved and like prove out that something really bad happened. Um, there, there's a variety of sort of, flows that an incident could go through. And if you have never talked about how it's gonna work, you certainly won't get it right. And ideally, not only will you define it, you'll train on it and then you'll test that with what we call tabletop exercises, like simulate a scenario, like a common scenario. Okay, let's say Betsy had a problem where someone asked her to 
buy some gift cards and take pictures of them and send them to him, send them to her. What did she do? Right. And she did it. What do you, what do you do next? Right. Um, or Joe used the same password on every website he ever visited. What do we do now? Joe would you know? never do that. <laughs> How do we know? Hmm. I don't know, Joe, what's your password? <laughs> uh, password. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, so that I kind of got off the chain there, but like I mean, coming back to the, to the rooms analogy, I mean, the whole idea is, you know, you want to have agreement around how that incident's going to get reported, handled, etc. If my daughter sends me an email or a text, she's going to get a different process than if she just comes and talks to me. Um, and maybe during the day when she's at home alone, or she's not home alone because there's people there, but let's say I'm not there and she wants to text me about something, that's a way to escalate. But there's only certain types of incidents I expect her to escalate. Because honestly, I have to get work done during the day. I don't expect to be texting them. All right, sorry if that didn't make sense, but that, no, that seemed like a useful way to talk about that. It definitely does. Um, so what I'm hearing, I think I hear you say is that, you know, part of the incident, incident handling process is training. Um, so with that training, do you recommend, you know, hands-on training or kind of a video training both? Well, we'd start with the video training on what the process is, right? And we obviously have a process baked into the security program.io that we're expecting to, to, to be a, a good base process for people to follow. Um, and so that's appropriate for getting that first level of awareness, right? What do you do if you think something happened? you email security at your company.com, right? What do you do next? You start gathering information. Like there's a process you follow. There's people you communicate with. There's people you don't communicate with, right? Um, certainly anyone outside the company you don't communicate with about an incident. Um, but I mean, to go on a deeper level for companies that are mature and have that established where you've got a process and you've got, a, you know, you've done the video training, then it's really useful to go through exercises that force the different key stakeholders to actually work together through an incident because it turns out that can be a really complicated thing, right? Like getting the lawyer to talk to the, C to the, to the security person and the IT person very quickly because there's an escalation. You want to sort of know how to frame that conversation and what information is required, right? It's, it's a waste of everybody's time if you bring too many incidents that don't, haven't been validated or don't, you don't know what they are. So to establish what are your, you know, evaluation criteria to prove that this is a real incident before you go to someone. And then as you go, what information do you have to provide? What's your turnaround expectation for, for responses and so forth? Um, but, you know, again, this may be a lot for especially very small companies. And this might be the last thing in this list to, to really worry about. But it's a good way to drive thoughtfulness around what you have to worry about um, and how you're going to respond. For sure. And, and you know, if you're small, it's kind of like with anything with security. If you start doing it now and getting a habit, it's going to be a lot easier whenever you grow and get bigger. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Like, we talk to a lot of companies where they are, they've grown and now they're doing you know, a $10 million deal with a very, very large company and they don't have anything from a security perspective. And they realize that they have to do all of this to win that deal. And that's a lot. It's really a lot, right? It's a heavy lift. And mm -hmm. so if you can put yourself in a position where you've incorporated it into who you are as a company and you've developed this over time, you're going to be in a really much better place to close those, those big business deals that depend on having a security posture.
Yep, good point. Um, so I believe that's a wrap on this podcast. Do you two have anything else to add? I think I talked enough for a day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you didn't talk that much. I, I'll just say that it, no matter how big or small you are, I mean, understand that there are positive steps you can take and uh, just try to, to, like Matt said, try to make it a part of who you are and then you will start reaping the benefits. Yep. Got to start somewhere. <laughs> Speaking of some of the resources that we mentioned, um, we will add those to the show notes so that you guys can check those out as well.